This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When you think about it, I mean, we're all, we're all interested in science because science tells us everything, explains who we are and how we got here, where we're going, and what we have to do if we want to get to where we want to go. And so science is really important to us, and we're all, I think, fascinated by it. But at, at different levels. I mean, my interest in science has nothing to do with equations and theorems and the kind of things that get, get written on blackboards. But I do want to know, you know, where, how the universe is has put together. And, and, and I've always been especially fascinated by things like, how does anybody know how much the Earth weighs? How do you figure that out? That's Bill Bryson best known for his compulsively readable and often laugh-out-loud books on people and places. Books like the story of his hike along the Appalachian Trail called A Walk in the Woods, which was later made into a movie with Robert Redford as Bill. But Bryson fans know that in the last few years, he's also turned his narrative skills to books that tackle science. First, there was a short history of nearly everything, and then more recently, The Body, a guide for occupants. He talked to me from his home in England. This is great. I'm so glad to be talking to you. You're one of the most successful and one of the best writers around. And you're an American who has worked out of England. You were born in Iowa. Why did you go to England, Bill? First of all, let me say I'm as excited to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me on. And the reason I went to England was it was a complete accident. Um, It was in the early 1970s. I was uh, 20 years old. I had grown up in Des Moines, Iowa, as you say, and I just wanted to see the world. And in those days, everybody, young people, went off with backpacks and hitchhiked around Europe and, you know, did Eurail passes and and that kind of thing. And that's all I intended to do was spend a summer hitchhiking around. And I did that. And I had such a great time that I went back again the next year and did it all over again. So I spent another four months hitchhiking all around Europe. And the second time, just by chance, I stumbled into a job at a psychiatric hospital just outside London and took this job, intended to stay for a couple of months and just have a paid vacation, really. And uh, while I was there working, I, I, I met a student nurse and I started dating her. And that was almost 50 years ago. And she's my wife. Ah, oh, that, that's a nice story. I'm always curious about Americans who spend time in Britain. They start to talk with a British accent, or what (laughs) sounds like a British accent to us. Anyway, did you try for it, or did it just creep up on you? No, it's just completely crept up on me. There's nothing I can do about it. It it is interesting, (laughs) because 
because I've got friends, American friends here who who have lived here less time than I have and sound completely English. I mean, you wouldn't know they were not British born. And then I've got others who have lived here for long periods and still sound as if they've just come from New Jersey yesterday, you know, and it affects different people in different ways. I've actually always resisted it in in the sense that I've never said banana or tomato or you know I still I still pronounce words in the same way but there's something about the rhythms and modulations that I think just overcome you. I haven't you know I haven't really spoken very much in an American context for almost half a century now so wow. it's 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 not a surprise. It's in your ear and it finds its way to your tongue. I guess. And, and it's odd because we always hear that after the age of six, I think, it's difficult to develop a foreign accent. Yeah, well, this is, again, it's not something I'm aware of. The only time I ever notice it is when I hear uh, another American who's lived in England for a long time. And then I think, oh, that's what, that must be what I sound like, you know, when you hear another American's talking. <laughs> how, how, about, how about English people? Do they think you have, how do they think you sound? Oh, I think I still sound very American to most English people. Yeah. And I, th- I think the reason for that is be, you hear the differences in people's voices. So they will, st- they will pick up on, on the, the American, um, you know, the, the, the little bits of residual Americanness in my voice, whereas... An American will naturally pick up on the, the, the little bits of that are non-American in my voice. You know, I, as long as this is a, an aspect of communication that interests me, and I've read s- several times that people from Britain either have or f- feel they have many more ways to express something merely by a slight shift in the tone of voice. Do you find yourself communicating with tone more than you did before when you were? Totally American. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance in British speech, which even now, after all these years, I still am, am an outsider with. And then there's pronunciation differences, which are, are throw me all the time. I mean, I, my own wife, you know, I mean, I could not be more closely associated with her for a very long period. And yet I still, well, there will still be times when I don't understand and I miss <laughs> what she's saying to me. Be, because of the differences in pronunciation, my ear doesn't always hear these things. I mean, I remember, you know, she might... If she says lettuce, I don't know if she's talking about a salad vegetable or whether she's talking about something that arrives in the mail every day. Oh, right, right, lettuce. So I, I have to listen carefully to all kinds of words um, that she says. If, if the context isn't absolutely clear, then sometimes I, I get thrown by her in a way that, that would never happen to me with an American. I, I, even as a kid, everybody I knew was puzzling over the word laboratory. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I don't. I you know I still say laboratory, and um, and sometimes I get corrected for it. But it's important, I think, to try. And, <laughs> I I do try desperately to cling to the little bits of you know whatever is left of, inside me of of an Americanness. So an extension of that notion of communication is how you've been described as compulsively readable, which I certainly is a term I certainly agree with. And I wonder if you have a protocol you follow or a theory you have about how to be so readable. I mean, for instance, you must be asked to give advice to other writers. If you are, what do you say to them? How do you, how do you talk about this? 
Well, mostly what they want to know is how do they get published and how do they make money from <laughs> yeah. it? And, how, do they, how do they get an agent? <laughs> yeah, well, that, all that kind of thing, which is quite understandable that people would want to know that. And my only advice there is just persevere, just keep keep at it. Um, in terms of quality of, of, of writing, I, 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 I don't know what, what I do exactly. I don't, I don't think about it very much, but... I suppose what I'm trying to do when I when I sit down to write is I, I'm trying to ad, adopt a tone that is conversational and friendly, and I, I, a little bit as if maybe I'm talking to a good friend or to my brother or you know somebody that, and to and and it's sometimes very hard to actually get that tone right. It's the thing I struggle with most when I start a book is the first paragraph just just striking a tone. But it does seem to me that when I when I find that when I get the first paragraph done, and I've kind of got some momentum going with it, then then it becomes easier. And I really do try to be conversational uh, in, in as much as you can. It, it depends a lot on the context, how serious a book it is, and you know whether I'm doing a, a sort of lighthearted travel book or a more serious science book it will 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 dictate the tone to some extent. But I do think my own feeling is that. For any reader, you're asking a lot of them, not only in money terms, to buying books is expensive, but also an investment in time. That, And I think you owe it to them to, to try to be as an agreeable a host as you can be when you're, when you're giving them your book. I'm interested in the, how the content changed a little. You were a successful writer of travel and you focused on the people you met. And then you switched to science with that wonderful book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. What, what, what made you make that jump? It seems like a big jump. Well, it's, thank you for the compliment, Alan, first of all. Uh, yeah, you know, I never saw myself as a travel writer. That was, uh, I mean, that was not an, a lifetime's ambition. It was something I stumbled into. I really did enjoy and always have enjoyed traveling and, and writing about it. And it's, you know, I... I but it wasn't something that I, I wanted to spend my life doing exclusively. And I found that after I'd done a, a few travel books, um, that I, I felt a little bit as if I had, you know, mined that vein and I was running out, you know, I was running out of good seams to mine. And I just thought I'd have a change of, of pace. And I had always wanted to try to I'd always been fascinated by science, but as somebody who was terrible at science at school, I mean, I was the worst student in the world at chemistry and physics. Oh, you know, you're a brother. I've always been fascinated by science, and I failed chemistry. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think there's lots of people like us. And and when you think about it, I mean, we're all, we're all interested in science because science tells us everything, explains who we are and how we got here, where we're going, and what we have to do if we want to get to where we want to go. And so science is really important to us, and we're all, I think, fascinated by it, but at, at different levels. I mean, my interest in science has nothing to do with equations and theorems and the kind of things that get, get written on blackboards. But I do want to know, you know, where, how the universe is has put together. And, and, and I've always been especially fascinated by things like, how does anybody know how much the Earth weighs? Mm -hmm. How do you figure that out, you know? <laughs> yeah. how, do you, or how do you know how many million miles it is to the sun or how much energy it's putting out? And there's so much that's out there that I could never figure out myself, and I'm full of admiration for people who can do that. And really, when I wrote the book, Short History Nearly Everything, my interest was not so much to 
just to find out about science and how the universe operates, but also how did people figure these things out? That, you know, that, that is, to me, the, the, the really amazing thing. Is, is not just that we're in this universe with, with all of these astounding uh, facts and, and goings on all around us, but that, but that people could, could understand those, that could pick them apart, prize them apart, and work out how it all, all fits together. How do you deal with the idea that some of your readers are totally up to speed on a term or a process that you're talking about and others need to be introduced way back earlier and you don't want to uh, you don't want to insult the people who already know what it means but you want to bring the the, the others up to date how, how do you how do you go about handling that well, I, th- I mean, I think you've just put your finger on what is probably the toughest part of all of, of writing a, a, a book about science um, or any kind of technical subject, because you know the, your audience is is potentially infinite. Really, I mean, you don't know who you you don't really know who you're addressing yourself to, um, and, that, and it, it, it's all I can do is is essentially what I'm doing is writing books. For myself, mm. I mean, to, I'm setting the tone and, and actually providing the information that I that I would need as a reader. These are, the, you know, so I'm assuming that that you, as my reader, are approximately uh, informed to the same extent that I am. That educated, roughly to the same extent that I've been. That that you, you know, have the same cultural attachments and are f- familiar with the same sorts of things that I would be. And that the, th- the, th- the things that I'm writing about, that I'm trying to explain, are things that you also would need to have explained to you. But of course, it's just it's just guessing. But I I am the only template that I can possibly use. Do you put yourself in the place of a reader? Do you think as you write, do they need to know this or do they need to know that first? You do, or do you use yourself alone as the uh, template? Well, I'm, I, I mean, you do try to think of the reader, but but I think you have to go with your own instinct and your own experience of yourself. The one thing I do know that is the worst thing you could possibly do is to start writing for the experts or writing for critics, because they, <laughs> yes, if you right. pitch, start pitching stuff to them to try and please or satisfy them, that's just a, that's just foolish. It just that doesn't work, um, and you start to be insincere really what you're saying because you're you're, you know, you're trying to impress people or you're trying to um, head off criticisms before you know anticipate criticisms and head them off uh, so, so you, you just cannot do that yeah i can i know from experience that can be not good and you you have to take what they write often in a in a technical language and translate it for yourself so you understand it and then you have to be careful that you don't misspeak as you write. How do you how do you check up on yourself? Do you call up other call up scientists and ask them if you've got it right, or do you do you have confidence that you've got it right? Oh no, no, I have no confidence at all. And, I mean, it, that would be really. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it, out of modesty, but it really is. I mean, I'm not a trained scientist, and so I have to be 
hyper careful. And so what I do do is is I, I get a lot of experts. I have mentors, as I think of them, um, usually in, in various fields. Uh, and and I turn to them both for understanding, but also you know, to, re- to read and, and help me revise the things that I've written, just to make sure. I mean, there's certain things. When I did a short history of nearly everything, I had a a wonderful professor at Imperial College in London, which is the premier science university in Britain. And um, he just very patiently, he dealt, he helped me with everything to do with the sub, subatomic world. Mm. Uh, you, you know, all of those tiny things, which are so hard, so counterintuitive and so hard to understand, um, certainly for people like me. And he very, very patiently you know, I would write a draft and send it to him and he'd say, no, you've almost got some of this right, not quite the other bits. And then I'd have to redo it. And I kept submitting drafts of my chapters to him until I got it essentially satisfied him, you know, until he gave me a sort of C plus. Yeah. That meant it was good enough to put in the book. He certainly didn't say to me, you should be a scientist, Bill. No, no, right. <laughs> but I think that's a wonderful advantage that you have, that you're learning. Because if you already knew it, right down to the bone, you'd, you'd be likely to suffer from the curse of knowledge, which is forgetting what it's like not to understand the very early steps, to, to, not to understand it deeply. And when you do that, you, you cut out a lot of people who are not up to speed with you. But in the process of learning it yourself, we learn along with you. Well, yeah, again, I think you put your finger right on something really, really crucial, and that is I learned early on when I was doing the interviewing scientists for short history and nearly everything, the question I would ask them is, what was it that excited you about your field? Mm-hmm. What made you decide you know, to spend your whole life studying lichen or, you know, particle physics and, or cosmology? Why, you know, you've got a giant brain, you could have studied all kinds of things. Why did you focus on this one thing? And what was interesting was how often that question sort of through them, that they had to pause for a moment and re- try to remember what it was in their field. Be- because it's been their lives, the, the yeah. central focus of their lives for so long that they've actually forgotten. A little bit like, you know, if I said to you, why, why did you want to become an actor? You might have to stop and think because you've been doing it for so long that you forget the magic of what it was that drew you to your field in the first place. Well, in my case, I've been asked the question so many times and I've written about it so many times. <laughs> it's very clear to me. But... Also, because I approach most things through the sense of story and character, and and you do that, you've done that with the book. It's a narrative history of science, and you've approached, I think, science as a human endeavor. You've these are the people who do the science. I'm wondering. It's a question like the one you you brought up about what got you interested in science. Among the people you wrote about, who who impressed you the most? Who had the best story, do you think? My, my favorite person of all was a, a, a man whose name escapes me now, but he was the Moss Man. Moss. M- Moss, M-O-S-S, man. His specialty, his life was devoted to mosses. And, and he had a, a wonderful office at the Natural History Museum in London, and he spent his whole life studying mosses and and categorizing them, cataloging them. And, and, I mean, this is really, really important work because there's not many people in the world doing it. And so, if you, you know, he's the guy that 
you would go to if you needed to know anything at all about mosses. And, and his enthusiasm was just so infectious. And he had all of these samples of moss in, in this cupboard, big cupboard. And, and he would keep, you know, he would say, oh, and you must see this one from Sumatra. And he would leap up and pull out this sample of moss. And the thing about moss is, is you can keep them dry for virtually forever, apparently. And if you just moisten them, they will spring back to life uh. the way they are in nature. And he was, so he would moisten these things and show me this moss from Sumatra, and then there'd be another the next one would be from Java or you know, Pensacola, Florida, or wh- wherever. And the, the thing was that to me, as a layman, they all looked the same. Every single one of them looked like every other one. <laughs> and yet, to him, it was this world of just infinite excitement and and variety. And I found that, and that to me just was. It, it was just so enchanting that, 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 first of all, he could devote his whole life to this thing, but also that there was this richness to it that, that I would never have ever suspected or even been able to, you know, experience if, it hadn't, if I hadn't sat there with him for an hour of his time and let him explain all this stuff to me. It kind of just, that was what showed me the excitement of science. Yes, transmitting that excitement is one of the great gifts I think we can give the the public who doesn't yet realize how exciting science can be. When we come back from our break, Bill Bryson tells me what most astounds him from his delving into science and why he called his latest book on the human body a guide for occupants. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Bill Bryson, who was telling me about his surprise in discovering who scientists actually are. One of the things that really came home to me when I did the book is, is something that's overlooked a lot, I, I think, especially by lay people. Uh, uh, it, because you tend to think the science is being done by, you know, Einsteins and Newtons and all these people with these, you know, really significant breakthrough moments. But in fact, what science really is, is lots and lots and lots. I mean, hundreds of thousands of and pretty much anonymous people doing little bits that just adding small amounts to the great corpus of knowledge that we have. Uh, and, and it's the collective efforts of all of these anonymous people that, that allow us to be as well-informed as a species as, as we are and to make all the 
important advances we do. It's not about Einstein and Newton. I mean, obviously, occasionally you get you know somebody with a giant brain who does something like that, but it's mostly the work of anonymous people working in very, very specific and arcane areas. And that was a, that was a real revelation to me when I was doing the book. And while they work on these very specific areas, you had the advantage of ranging over all of their work and thinking about it in a more whole way. Is there a discovery that you think changed the world the most that that impressed you? Without that, our lives would be so vastly different. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's, that's a gigantic question. I don't know. I mean, despite what I just said, there are, there are sort of breakthrough landmark moments in human thinking that are usually attributed, attributable to one or two people. And, I mean, one that leaps to mind immediately is Charles Darwin and theory mm-hmm. of evolution. Because it's so much of what, you know, we understand about how, how we evolve and develop and how we got to be where we are now traces back to that. But, but I mean, in order to answer your question sensibly, I would, I would have to go away and think about it. Uh, or, or actually, I'd have to go away and talk to a lot of better informed people than I am. And write a book. <laughs> You've really looked at nature from many aspects, from many points of view. Does something strike you about nature that is particularly interesting and mysterious and beautiful? Well, I think, I, I mean, I, I think the most amazing fact there is, is, well, first of all, that we're here, we exist. I mean, that to me, there's, in all of nature, there is nothing more astounding than the fact that, that you know, we exist as both as individuals and as you know, species and entities, and as a civilization, that's that's pretty astounding. But also, the, the I think the equally astounding is the idea that we that that all of life traces back to one moment of creation. You know, there was some something that brought life to Earth. Obviously, a very unusual event in the universe at large, and that every single thing that's ever lived since then can trace itself back to that that foundation event so that, you know, we're, we're not only all intimately related as, to each other as humans, but we're intimately related to fungi and algae mm. and, and, you know, bananas and trees. <laughs> everything, everything that's alive has, has you know, we all have a, a common ancestor, ultimately have a common ancestor. I think, I think that's a pretty amazing fact. You you remind me of a question I ask at dinner tables a lot, and not just to start conversation, but I'm really interested in how people think about this question. Scientists have told me that the average species over time, the average species lasted about two million years. I think you may have a different number, but it's 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 surprisingly long compared to how we measure time among humans. And if two, if around two million years is the average life of a species, do we have any hope of being average? How long will we last? What What do you think about that? Well, that's a really good question. I personally, I'm an optimist, and I and I really hope and believe that humans will that we will be our own salvation. We, you know, we're the only species. 
out of the out of the millions that have existed, we're the only species so far that is able to actually do something about our fate to you know to manipulate it, control it to some extent. But of course, we're also the only species so far that's that's you know capable of killing ourselves off, of of making ourselves extinct just through our own foolishness. And um, the, you know, as I, as I think I said in the book, we we may be in the position of simultaneously being the universe's greatest achievement and its biggest failure at the same <laughs> right. at the same time. And um, but I hope, I mean, because because I think you just have to be an optimist about these things because it's so depressing. It would be so depressing to be the alternative. I really do hope that that the, the heavenly side of our nature will per, will will prevail. And and that um, you know we will go from strength to strength, and that we won't we won't exterminate ourselves through some kind of idiocy. Sometimes I wonder if Mars not only had life but had intelligent life that um, turned it into a desert. Well, we're perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah. I'm interested in your latest book with this wonderful title, The Body, A Guide for Occupants. Did you have any epiphanies as you were working on that? For instance, was there an organ in the body that you were surprised about? The gallbladder, the appendix, the, the microbiome, as some, some people think of as an organ? Well, the thing that was interesting about that book compared with The Short History of Nearly Everything, in The Short History of Nearly Everything, I, I was dealing with subjects I knew nothing about. Uh, with the body, in in one sense, I, again, I was dealing with subjects I, I knew next to nothing about. But at the same time, everything in your body is something you can relate to. So at least, you know, you do have an acquaintance with all of these things. You know, you know, you 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 and I know a lot about the human heart because we've been living with one since the moment of our creation. And, and the brain, you know, you, so... And you can you can relate to these things, but at the same time, uh, the reason I call it a guide for occupants is because I've always had this feeling that we have this, you know, we exist within this frame, this kind of big bag of tissue, and we occupy the space without really n- knowing much about it. I, I've always felt slightly ashamed that I, I, you know, I don't know exactly where my spleen is or what mm. it's doing for me, <laughs> right. or you know. And I mean, I've gone through life with all of these questions. Say, even just something as basic as blood types. You know, why are they A, B, and O? What, what happened to C, D, E, F, G, and so right, on? Right. You know, they're just things like that. Um, and and I, I, so I've been struck by a long for a long time that you know that we spend our whole existence in this thing. There's nothing you're more intimately acquainted with than your own body, for obvious reasons. And yet, you know, most of us know very, very little about. How we how it works and how we're put together and and what a what a what a wonder it is. So that was the idea of the book. We don't have much relationship with um, most of our organs until one of them starts to hurt. It, it, we're occupying a place we're not even aware of occupying. It's in many cases, I think. Yes, exactly. You can. I mean, you can very easily go your whole life without knowing the names of, of really crucial parts inside you, unless something goes wrong with them. I mean, the first time you're ever likely to hear about certain parts of your brain, for instance, is if you know something bad is going on up there. Um, 
so it's, it's, there's a certain comfort in knowing that your body looks after you, and you you know even if you were a little bit careless with looking after it. But at the same time, it does seem strange when you just pause to think about it that we have this thing that has been keeping us alive that is that is us, and yet you know we don't pay that much attention to it most of us most of the time. You know, unfortunately, our time is running out. I wish I could talk longer with you. There's, there's a lot about the body and nature that I want, I'd love to hear from you, which is a good, a good uh, way to make a suggestion to our listeners that they check out your books. We usually end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game? Sure, of course, of course. You've certainly covered the waterfront. However, what do you wish you really understood Oh, gosh. The ultimate question is, you know, what started it all? What was it that, that created life on Earth in, in the very first instance? Um, I mean, if you're a spiritual person, which I'm afraid I'm not, you know, God is your answer, that there was, life was created by God. But if you're looking at it purely scientifically, something happened, and nobody can tell us. No, nobody really knows what, what it was. So I think that would be a, a very, very interesting question to have answered, was what, what was the spark that started life on Earth. I don't remember. Did you write about the guy who seemed to have created life in a bottle? He was, in, the, in the 1950s, um, his name was Stanley something, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, it was at the University of Chicago. And, he, and he, 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 he made some amino acids or something like that in a... You know, in a laboratory or a laboratory, if you prefer. <laughs> and well, that was Chicago. I mean, ultimately, they decided. I think that it didn't prove very much, uh, but it was a. It's what Yuri. His name was Yuri. It's just come to me. U R E Y, and um, it was just just an interesting experiment, and uh, it's one of those experiments that always seems to get written about, even though it didn't really have any great consequences. I haven't heard about anybody following up on that. Well, okay, let me get to the next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? How do I tell them they have their facts wrong? Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, um, I mean, what I get a lot of is every time I write a book, then I get people writing to me telling me that I've got my facts wrong. And they, they, <laughs> you know, they take issue with usually with some, some specific part in which they're an expert. Um, and occasionally, what I have found is that, that I, I was right; they were they were wrong. Um, but, <laughs> How do you tell but them it is, that? I spend a lot. Of <laughs> well, then I write back and I say, "Look, this is my source. This is what I've I I think this is what I've said." Um, and it, sometimes it's, a, it's it's rather more to do with opinion than with you know with an established fact. Um, uh. Or that it doesn't. What I've written doesn't necessarily fit in with their theory. If you're talking about things like the importance of certain discoveries to do with ancient human remains, for instance, which ones are more important than others? These are scientific matters, but they're really matters more, that are much, much more to do with opinion than with some, uh, you know, neutral facts. Next question: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> well. Um, I, I, just just recently, I was asked if I would go in and officiate at somebody's wedding. That I, they they were in where were they? They were in in Australia, I think, 
or was it New Zealand? Anyway, they, they said that according to some law, as long as a, a, a pastor of some sort was present, uh, another person could actually conduct the wedding, and they wanted me to conduct their wedding, apparently to travel out there at my own expense. Was this someone you actually knew? No, it was just, they just thought it would be a novelty <laughs> to have. And they thought you'd love doing it. <laughs> and yes, and that I could find the time to do it. So I think that was the, that was the strangest request I've ever had. That ranks as a very, very good strange question. <laughs> now, next, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, well, it, normally... Because I'm quite, I'm, 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 I'm quite introverted. Uh, I'm very happy if I'm at a dinner party with somebody who talks a lot. I find that a, a, a relief, and I'm very, I'm really happy to listen to other people talking. Um, I, I find one of the hardest things in the world is when you, when you sat next to somebody at a dinner and they're not communicative and they don't want to talk to you. That's exactly the next question. If you're at a dinner party with someone you don't know next to you. How do you start up a really genuine conversation with that person? If you've got a trick, please tell me because I'm, I'm not very, <laughs> I'm somewhat inept at these things. I mean, normally I, I do the usual obvious thing of asking them what they do or where they're from. But with the slight difference that I, I, I do find that I'm, I sometimes feel I'm more curious about these things than other people. It's not just simply politeness that, you know, if you tell me you're from Missouri or, you know, I, I don't know, Montana, that in itself will begin to m make me wonder about how how did you get to where you are now? How did you, you know, why are you here at the same party with me tonight? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm quite, I, love that, I love the sort of journeys people take through life. It sounds like you're presenting them with your curiosity, which is genuine, which is kind of, uh, it's attractive. It makes you want to talk and satisfy that curiosity. Well, I just, I do genuinely feel that all humans are... We're all individual, and everybody is is interesting. Um, you know, a little bit like Will Rogers said, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, you know, I, I kind of feel like I never met a human who wasn't at least potentially interesting. Even if they're, you know, even if they're very difficult and challenging to talk to, they're, they're interesting for that very fact. Yeah, how did you get into the mafia? Did you have to take a written exam? <laughs> <laughs> so next to last question. What gives you confidence? Oh gosh, what I suppose experience is 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 the thing that leaps to mind. I mean, you know, I I, I have retired now. I'm not doing. I don't intend to do any more books. But but I, because I've done a lot of books, I feel as if I you know I know what I'm doing. I mean, just as a practical undertaking, I know how much time it's going to take and how much effort and energy it's going to it's going to require um you know I, so there's a certain confidence because you've done something uh, a few times that, that you you now know how to do it uh, so i think experience is for me here's the last question what book changed your life oh gosh you know it's okay you you might well relate to this because of, we're, we're not dissimilar generations, but it was a Hardy Boy book. And, uh. and my brother had all these Hardy Boy books that, um, you know, he had some, he, my brother was, was nine years older than me. So his Hardy Boy books sort of dated from the late 1940s, early 1950s. And, and he already had a big collection that got passed on to me just when I, when I was starting to read. 
And by reading the Hardy Boy books, I discovered the magic of reading. I just, they, I was sucked into these these stories, and I I wanted it. It, it it gave me an experience of a possible alternative lives. I wanted to I wanted to live in the same little town, Bayport, as the Hardy Boys, and and follow them around and be part of their crowd. And 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 to me, that was just magical. And that was that was the the beginning of of realizing that words on a page could actually be this magical thing. So although it was not great literature, it was it it was my you know, it was my entree into into the world of reading. They drew you into reading just as you draw us into science and everything else you write about, uh, our own bodies. It, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Bill. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Oh, no, the pleasure's been all mine, Alan, and a great honor, too. So thank you very much for having me on. Well, it's been just great. I, I, I look forward to, if you're not going to write more, send me an email once in a while. I promise. That would be great. That'd be wonderful. (laughs) Great talking with you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science, for the benefit of humanity. Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, is a book one scientist joked as being annoyingly free of mistakes, and it's won numerous awards. It led to his being elected as an honorary fellow of the Royal Society, Britain's most prestigious scientific society. His most recent book, and sadly, if Bill keeps his promise to retire, his final book is The Body, a guide for occupants. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with physician Gillian Horton, who has written a wonderful book entitled We Are All Perfectly Fine, a memoir of love, medicine, and healing. In it, she describes how, as she puts it, she had a front row seat to a very personal story of human suffering. It was an experience that has shaped her approach to her patients. Every individual that I meet in a clinical setting has lost something. Their life has changed. They've uh, left a state of health that they were in before, and now uh, they're struggling to regain equilibrium. So I always think of it, you're trying to alleviate something. In a moment in time, you're trying to just make the load that someone is carrying a little bit lighter somehow, in some way, with your art, with your presence, with your jokes, with the way that you're interacting with them clinically. So I do see a little thread running through my life in all of these different settings. Dr. Gillian Horton, next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on Thursday, over on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with neuroscientist Ev Fedorenko about how our brains and our minds create language 
and the enduring mystery of how we acquire it in the first place. So far, it's been really tricky to make progress in understanding how kids learn because we don't have good tools for probing kids' brains at the age when the language explosion happens. We can put them in fMRI scanners when they're infants and can't tell us that they don't want to go there. <laughs> and then we can put kids in scanners again after about age four. But in that time between, you know, like six months and two and a half or three years old, when the whole language system kind of sets in place and suddenly kids know hundreds of words and can put them together, we just don't have good tools to probe the neural responses. Uh, but I'm hoping that with the advances that keep happening, we'll eventually be able to do it. Ed Fedorenko, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>